When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. My name is Daniel Chow, and I'm a gastroenterologist at the VA in Loma Linda, California. I completed fellowship at the University of California, Irvine, following medical school and residency at the University of Massachusetts, which is not as close to Boston as you might hope. I'm only on social media through my dog at hashtag putting the golden doodle, all one word. And now for our case. A 43-year-old male presents to your clinic one week following a hospitalization for new-onset ascites. He has poor recollection of events, stating, I'm sorry, I was still drinking a lot, and I don't really remember what happened. He does remember having a paracentesis performed with removal of a few large bottles of fluid. During his initial physical with you one year ago, he reported consuming one pint of bourbon daily for the past 15 years. He was counseled on the risks of heavy drinking at that time and agreed to try quitting, but declined referral to mental health services. He subsequently did not obtain the blood work you ordered and was lost to follow-up. The first question to answer is, what is ascites? Ascites is the pathological collection of fluid within the peritoneal space. The most common cause is portal hypertension related to advanced liver fibrosis. Other important etiologies of ascites include heart failure, nephrotic syndrome, malignancy, and tuberculosis. Surgery, trauma, acute pancreatitis, or any other cause of major intra-abdominal inflammation can also lead to peritoneal fluid collections. Therefore, it is important to determine the underlying cause of new-onset ascites, since treatment of these conditions can vary considerably. Abdominal paracentesis to obtain a fluid sample is necessary for diagnosis. Internal medicine and emergency medicine providers should be comfortable performing diagnostic paracentesis. Basic analysis only requires four phlebotomy tubes of liquid, one for chemistry, one for cell count, and two culture bottles. So obtaining a sample may only require topical anesthetic, a 60cc syringe, a smaller gauge needle to inject topical anesthetic, and a larger gauge needle to draw the fluid. If cancer is in the differential diagnosis, then a sample should also be sent for cytology, and the more the better for them. Obtaining the sample before antibiotics are given helps prevent false negative culture results, but waiting for the procedure should not cause unnecessary delays in antibiotic administration, especially when clinical suspicion for infection is high. The fluid total protein level in the serum ascites albumin gradient or SAG, which technically should be pronounced SOG, are both needed to move down the diagnostic algorithm. The SAG is the difference between the albumin level of a blood sample and the albumin level of the ascites fluid. Serum albumin can vary significantly from day to day, 
and is affected by nutritional status and IV albumin infusion, both of which are relevant to the care of advanced liver cirrhosis. Therefore, it is important to draw a serum albumin on the same day the paracentesis is done, ideally before IV albumin is given, to ensure an accurate SAG measurement. A SAG greater than or equal to 1.1, remember the equal to, indicates that the cause of ascites is related to portal hypertension. SAG less than 1.1 means the cause is related to intra-abdominal inflammation or nephrotic syndrome. For both high and low SAG ascites, the second step in assessment is based on the fluid total protein. The cutoff for both is greater than or equal to, again, greater than or equal to, 2.5. High SAG, high total protein ascites is from a process at or downstream to the hepatic vein, i.e. post-hepatic, and is most commonly cardiac in nature. High SAG, low protein ascites is caused by intrinsic liver pathology. Low SAG, high total protein ascites is inflammatory in nature, and low SAG, low total protein ascites is caused by nephrotic syndrome. Best write that down and visualize it. To burn this information in, let's review. The first step for determining the cause of ascites is to look at the SAG. The cutoff for both SAG and total protein is always greater than or equal to. High SAG means portal hypertension. Low SAG means inflammation or nephrotic syndrome. The second step is to look at fluid total protein. Again, greater than or equal to, with cutoff of greater than or equal to 2.5. High SAG, high total protein ascites is post-hepatic, such as from structural heart disease. And high SAG, low total protein is hepatic. Low SAG, high total protein ascites is inflammatory and low SAG, low total protein ascites is nephrotic syndrome. Got it now? You review the patient's discharge summary and see that a diagnostic and therapeutic paracentesis was performed with removal of seven liters of fluid. Fluid analysis showed a high SAG, low fluid total protein consistent with liver disease as the underlying cause. His blood work was significant for a thrombocytopenia and an ultrasound was read as nodular liver contour and splenomegaly with no liver lesions. Based on these findings, you advise the patient that he has cirrhosis of the liver. Let's dive a little deeper into cirrhosis of the liver. Cirrhosis is a histological diagnosis based on the degree of fibrosis or scar tissue buildup within the hepatocyte network. Remember that liver cells are arranged in hexagonal units called lobules, separated by venous canals and at the center of each is the aptly named central vein. At each corner of the hexagon is a portal triad consisting of branches of the hepatic artery, portal vein, and intrahepatic bile duct. Chronic liver inflammation, such as that caused by alcohol, steatohepatitis, or viral hepatitis, leads to destruction of hepatocytes, which results in fibrosis. Scar tissue formation begins around the portal triads, hence the term periportal and is the definition of stage 1 fibrosis. As disease progresses, the fibrosis extends like an arm towards an adjacent portal tract. This fibrous expansion, when short, is called stage 2, and when the arms from two portal tracts connect, the resultant bridging fibrosis is characteristic for stage 3. Stage 4 fibrosis defines cirrhosis, and here the fibrous networks are extensive and thickened, and portal triad to central vein bridges form, 
in addition to the previously described portal-portal bridges. This leads to the hepatocytes appearing to be isolated into nodules. The patient now remembers being told that he had cirrhosis when he was in the hospital. He is curious how this diagnosis was made without a tissue sample. He also asks whether this means he needs a liver transplant. While the ascites fluid analysis in this patient strongly suggests the presence of cirrhosis, most patients with chronic liver disease do not present this way. So knowing the available methods of staging liver fibrosis is important. Liver biopsy is the gold standard for diagnosis of cirrhosis because it is by far the most well-established method. But it is being challenged by elastography, which are non-invasive imaging modalities that measure stiffness. Liver biopsy is invasive and carries several risks, most commonly bleeding. Sampling error is also a key issue because cirrhosis is not a homogeneous process and the tissue cores are the size of the inside of a needle. Some research has shown that liver biopsy can miss cirrhosis in nearly 15% of cases. Imaging can be a pertinent positive when it shows a nodular liver. Just like a deep soft tissue injury leads to scarring that pulls the skin inwards, extensive scarring of the liver causes the organ to shrink. The way the fibrous branches develop histologically leads to the bumpy surface at the macular level. Remember that the sensitivity of liver contour nodularity is low, meaning even if the liver looks good to a radiologist, it does not rule out cirrhosis. So why does cirrhosis lead to splenomegaly? Portal hypertension, a consequence of advanced liver fibrosis, results in venous stasis in the portal system that affects the splenic vein, which is part of that system. As a result, the spleen enlarges. The spleen is a storage shed for platelets, and the body doesn't waste space, so when the spleen is bigger, the more platelets get locked away, reducing the number in circulation. This causes thrombocytopenia. And you thought anatomy was a waste of time because you had no interest in surgery. This is one of the concepts behind a lab test-based mathematical formula for staging liver fibrosis called the Fibrosis 4 score, or FIB4 for short. The other three components are the alanine aminotransferase, or ALT, the aspartate aminotransferase, or AST, and age. Since these components are part of routine labs, FIB4 is a practical initial assessment tool. However, results should be interpreted carefully because these individual components are very nonspecific. If advanced liver fibrosis is suspected, other modalities should be used for confirmation. Elastography utilizes the propagation of mechanical waves through hepatic tissue to estimate stiffness and is an accurate predictor of liver fibrosis stage. Currently, two modalities of elastography are being used, ultrasound and magnetic resonance. There are three types of ultrasound-based elastography, including vibration-controlled transient elastography, or VCTE, acoustic radiation force impulse imaging, or ARFI, and two-dimensional shear wave elastography. At this point, none of these has been found to be superior to the others in terms of accuracy. Magnetic resonance elastography, or MRE, investigates liver stiffness by measuring the shear speed, that's S-H-E-A-R, of mechanical waves propagated through the entire liver's volume. This modality is not universally accessible due to the technological requirements, and there is a significant per-test cost differential, but Studies suggest that MRE carries the highest diagnostic accuracy and success rates compared to other forms of elastography. 
One key point when comparing elastography to liver biopsy is that liver biopsy provides the added benefit of potentially identifying the underlying liver disease that is causing fibrosis. Therefore, if a disease that requires histological confirmation, such as autoimmune hepatitis, primary biliary cholangitis, or alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency is the suspected cause of liver disease in someone who needs liver fibrosis staging, biopsy may be preferred over elastography. Individuals without complications of cirrhosis are classified as compensated. A history of high SAG, low total protein ascites, bleeding from esophageal varices, or hepatic encephalopathy defines decompensated cirrhosis. Since the clinical manifestations of decompensated cirrhosis are impressive, their presence can be diagnostic of cirrhosis. However, remember that diseases such as acute alcoholic hepatitis and hepatic or portal vein thrombosis related to malignancy or hypercoagulable disorders can also cause these clinical manifestations. So a liver fibrosis staging assessment should still be performed in some situations. You advise your patient that alcohol was a major contributor possibly the only contributor to his liver damage and resulting cirrhosis, and recommend that he stop drinking. He seems reluctant and again declines referral for addiction counseling and mental health evaluation. He is amenable to treatment for ascites, though he did not continue the medications he was prescribed at discharge because it made him urinate too frequently. There's a small amount of fluid reaccumulation on exam. What a useful segue into management of ascites. As mentioned above, ascites has numerous etiologies, and so the underlying cause must always be addressed. In this case, the cause is cirrhosis of the liver, which also always has an underlying cause. While alcohol is most certainly one of the causes here, a serological evaluation for other chronic liver diseases should be completed, as many individuals have multiple diagnoses. Alcohol is an addictive substance, and the risk of relapse remains high, estimated in some studies to be greater than 60%, even with engaged psychology and psychiatry providers. Without longitudinal mental health support, the risk of relapse is increased further. This patient's lack of willingness to seek help makes it likely that he will continue to drink, which will lead to progressive liver injury and a worse prognosis. Participation in a relapse prevention program is also necessary to be eligible for liver transplant and patients should be made aware of this consequence. Portal hypertension leads to sodium retention due to multiple mechanisms ultimately causing intravascular volume depletion that affects the kidneys, which respond by activating the renin-angiotensin system to retain sodium, which is followed by water. Therefore, dietary sodium restriction, and not water restriction, mind you, is theoretically the only intervention needed to completely prevent the development of ascites. Of course, that's impossible. Even the 2 gram per day limit is a general recommendation that applies to all individuals, not just those with ascites. So it's actually the lowest standard. Patients will often state that they don't add any salt to their food, but forget about the inherent sodium they are consuming. One lone naked hot dog contains over 500 milligrams of sodium. The hot dog bun amazingly has over 200 milligrams. Add some ketchup, mustard, and relish, eat a second one, and a person is already close to the 2,000 milligram threshold. One cup noodle contains 1,100 milligrams of sodium, and other brands have double that amount. I had to tell one patient he could no longer drink pickle juice, which he was consuming at least once a week. 
a detailed nutrition consult to get patients and their caretakers into the habit of reading labels and evaluating their success on a regular basis using a thorough dietary history can make a world of difference. The workhorse medications to treat ascites are loop diuretics and aldosterone antagonists. The combination of furosemide and spironolactone in ratios of 20 and 50 milligrams respectively is well studied and commonly used. Response is monitored with daily weight as reliable measurement of urine output is difficult in the outpatient setting. If the expected response is not achieved, even with appropriate dosage increases, a random urinary sodium and potassium should be measured while the patient is taking diuretics. If the urine sodium is greater than the urine potassium, then the ascites is diuretic responsive and the medications should be continued. If the urine sodium to potassium ratio is less than one, then the ascites is diuretic refractory. When diuretics are insufficient for controlling ascites, intermittent therapeutic paracentesis when symptoms develop is the most common management technique. In select patients, transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt placement or TIPS is appropriate but can cause or worsen hepatic encephalopathy and right heart overload. Indwelling catheters carry significant risk of infection and are not recommended except in end-of-life situations. Two weeks after the follow-up visit, your patient is hospitalized with abdominal pain and chills. Physical exam is significant for fever and tense ascites with tenderness to palpation of the abdomen. Diagnostic paracentesis is performed and fluid white blood cell count is elevated to 1600 with 75% neutrophils, confirming the clinical suspicion for SBP. S is for spontaneous, B for bacterial, and P, peritonitis. Unlike secondary peritonitis, which is caused by bacterial seeding from trauma, inflammation, or hematogenous spread from another infectious source, SBP results from spontaneous translocation of gut flora from the lumen to the peritoneal space. SBP carries high mortality when not treated promptly. Diagnosis requires a fluid sample, and as mentioned before, antibiotics can lead to falsely negative results, so the procedure should be prioritized so as not to delay initiation of antimicrobial therapy. The diagnostic criteria for SBP is a fluid polymorphonuclear count of greater than or equal to 250, which this patient had because 1600 times 0.75 is 1200. A positive fluid culture also confirms SBP regardless of the fluid neutrophil count. Since the organisms that cause SBP are gut flora, empiric antibiotics need to cover gram-negatives and anaerobes. E. coli and Klebsiella species make up the majority of bacteria strains, but gram-positive staph and strep species are not uncommon. A third-generation cephalosporin, such as cefotaxime or ceftriaxone, are first-line agents for SBP. Fluoroquinolones, such as ciprofloxacin, can be used as an alternative and during the transition to oral therapy, unless the patient has been taking this long-term for prophylaxis, something we will review later. Once culture results and a sensitivity panel are available, the regimen can be adjusted accordingly. Acute kidney injury is a dangerous complication of SBP, so maintaining the patient's intravascular space using IV albumin is a sometimes forgotten step in management. Don't be that provider. Albumin 1.5 grams per kilogram body weight should be given on the day SBP is diagnosed. If serum creatinine is greater than 1, 
BUN is greater than 30, or total bilirubin is greater than 4. Ideally, this is given within the first 6 hours. An additional 1 gram per kilogram body weight should be given on day 3. The risk of two albumin infusions is relatively low, and mortality if acute kidney injury develops is significantly increased. So this measure is often recommended regardless of the renal function on admission. Note that a repeat diagnostic paracentesis to confirm clearance of the bacteria is not necessary if the patient is responding appropriately to antibiotics. A five-day course is usually sufficient. Following his admission, your patient is finally convinced to follow directions and take his medications. He proudly reports that he has even maintained sobriety since his discharge and asks if there is anything he can do to prevent him from ever getting an infection again. Remember that preventive care is divided into primary prophylaxis, which is an intervention intended to prevent a disease from occurring, and secondary prophylaxis, which is used to prevent recurrence of a disease. All patients who had an episode of SBP require secondary prophylaxis with long-term antibiotics. Choices include a fluoroquinolone, most commonly ciprofloxacin, and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. The doses are less than that used for acute infections, but individuals with severe renal impairment may still require adjustments. Keep in mind the risk for QT prolongation, decreased seizure threshold, and Achilles tendon rupture with ciprofloxacin and sulfa allergy for trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. For primary prophylaxis, individuals who are at high risk for SBP include cirrhotics presenting for gastrointestinal hemorrhage, and a five-day course of empiric antibiotics has been found to decrease mortality even when patients do not have a history of ascites. Those who have fluid total protein of less than 1.5 grams per deciliter and any sign of advanced liver disease defined as serum sodium less than 130 BUN greater than or equal to 25, creatinine greater than or equal to 1.2, child Pew score greater than or equal to 9, or total bilirubin greater than or equal to 3 should also receive long-term antibiotics, always greater than or equal to. Finally, remember to consider liver transplant evaluation for decompensated cirrhotics, especially if the MELD score is greater than or equal to 15. I hope you learned something today. This is Daniel Chow, signing off. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.